Hi, I'm Zach. I've been working in beer for well over a decade, so it's not uncommon for me to find myself enjoying a pint and great conversation with some of the most interesting folks in the brewing industry. Since many of the world's most entertaining discussions happen over a beer, I thought it might be fun to share a few of mine with you. This is Zach Talks Beer. Hello and welcome to Zach Talks Beer. This is an informal podcast in which I welcome friends and peers from the brewing industry on for an unfiltered, honest, and oftentimes fun conversation about working in beer, life outside of beer, and everything in between. My name is Zach Nichols and I'm a brewer and a small brewery owner originally from Wisconsin, but now I'm based outside of beautiful Boulder, Colorado. I've been in the beer world professionally since about 2009, and I've met and spent valuable time with a lot of great people in that stretch, and my guest today is certainly one of them. I'm really honored to have on to the show today, uh, Charlie Papazian. Charlie, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's beer time, and that's always a good time to talk. Yeah, absolutely, and we're sitting here on a Monday. It's uh, just getting into the afternoon here. Uh, it's cool but sunny, and we are in Colorado. And Charlie, you're based locally, right? You're uh, right, in Boulder in County. Boulder County, just north of the city. North of the city. Nice, excellent. So not too far from where we're located. We're in uh, at my brewery in Lafayette, Colorado. So just about 15, 20 minutes from Boulder. So uh, yeah. So before we get too far ahead, Charlie brought a beer on with him that I want to crack into. He's got me all excited about it. It's sitting in a, a growler, so I can't quite see what it is, but. Um, he, uh, he was gracious enough to bring something special with them. I always ask our guests on the show to, you know, bring with them a beer that is special to them. So it can be something that they made. It can be, uh, something that they just love locally, or it can be kind of a classic beer that they, they feel deserves a little, uh, time in the sun. So, uh, Charlie, what do you got today? All right. Yeah. I'm excited to share this beer. It's, uh, the last part of a keg I have and this growler was poured out of the tap, so it's not quite as effervescent as it is fresh from the from the tap. Sure. But, uh, we'll get we'll we'll get into it. Yeah, uh, why don't you pop it open? I've got some glasses here for us. We can we can share it. Tell me about the beer. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, it's I call it Smithsonian Porter okay. these days. And I'm changing the name to uh, Smithsonian Schwarzbier because right. I, I kind of I'll tell you the story behind it. Uh, it's a thank you. It's a porter recipe that was initiated and a replication of a beer that I had at the 1982 Great American Beer Festival. Wow! And in those days, there was, there was 20 breweries, 40 beers. And one of the brewers was Falstaff Brewing Company. Okay. And at that time, they were being they were bought, just bought out by uh, a private company, and that company was a collector of brands, and it had, they had breweries here and there, but they were brewing all kinds of brands. And one of the brands that they had was uh, Ballantine, Ballantine sure. IPA, uh, IPA and Pale Ale and Ballantine Lager, mm -hmm. and. We had asked the brewers that we invited, and we invited them uh, to brew something other than some, or give us something for the beer festival that was other than American light lager. Sure. 
So to their credit, the brewmasters there, they got into it, and they brewed something they were going to call uh, Ballantine Porter. Okay. And they, uh, the recipe or the, the process in which they made this was in the, they, they sent that to us, the information to us, and we put it in the, in the program for mm-hmm. the beer festival. So I went back into there, because I remember that beer. It was a dark black porter, and it, and it was a little bit elevated in alcohol, uh, and it had, you know, tasting it, it was a really memorable beer. Mm. It had a really high ar- aromatic and flavor of Cascade hops. Okay. So it was obviously late hop and dried hop with sure. Cascade hops. Sure. And it wasn't until decades later, until I started saying, I want to see if I can make that, that I read the recipe and I said, wow, these guys were way ahead of not only their time, but craft brewer's time, because nobody in those days was dry hopping cat with Cascade hops. Yes. I mean, when, when people talked about dry hopping, it was only in reference to what, what real ale was. And so, and Cascade hops were definitely not being used in England in those days. Mm-hmm. So to, to have that, that creativity to, to make a porter and dry hop it, and make it really, you know, cascade aroma and cascade flavor, mm-hmm. um, dark, luscious porter was fantastic. The interesting thing was that it was made with 10% corn. Mm-hmm. It was aged in uh, their Ballantine Ale barrels, mm-hmm. wooden barrels, for about seven or eight weeks. Right. Um, they used, probably used cl- cluster hops uh, as, a, as a base. Um, so I tried to replicate that. And so the cluster hops aren't that available, but I know that the wild hops that I, that I found on my property, I live along Left Hand Creek mm-hmm. out in the plains, um, I found wild hops and cultivated them. And they have an, kind of an oniony, earthy, kind of sulfur-oriented yeah. aroma and flavor. But they don't have much bitterness. Mm-hmm. But um, I use those to kind of substitute for, for a cluster, and I also used... Uh, so what else did I use to? Uh, so a little bit of those local hops. In a the, little in bit of the okay. local hops. I use a little bit of uh, Mount Hood hops mm-hmm. that I I've also I also grow on my property. Okay. And I dry hop the heck out of it with uh, with Cascade. Nice. Um, and I use ten percent corn, and I brewed it with a lager yeast that I have that I brew all my beers with. But I fermented it at warm temperatures and then. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a Kolsch crashed it sure. and let it let it uh, lager sort of for, for a long time okay. because it was lager yeast, so it could sure. still keep going. And so that's the origin of this beer. What we're tasting is towards the end of the cake, so a lot of the cascade aroma is kind of dissipated. Yeah. But you, the balance of the beer was exactly what I was looking for and— I'm certainly getting hops on the aroma. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a little bit of that kind of light roast character coming off in the aroma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a little bit of cascade aroma and flavor and aroma still yeah. there. Yeah, certainly. I, I wouldn't call this not a hoppy beer. There's hops presence, mm-hmm. present for mm-hmm. sure. Wow, that's really nice. Yeah. And so with the corn you used in there, were you do, did you do like a cereal mash or did you just, what did you do with the, the corn to get that? It's, I used corn, flaked corn. Flaked corn. Flaked corn, but the way I homebrew... Um, I'll put, uh, you know, I'm using about a pound of corn, Mm -hmm. 
uh, flake corn. I'll put it, I'll add two cups of malt, crushed malt with it, and at a, a warm temperature, and I'll bring, slowly bring it to a boil. Mm-hmm. And that's my infusion to bring the temperature of a protein mash yeah. um, up to 154, 155 degrees. Yeah. So, um, so it's kind of a step mash. Mm-hmm. Um, not exactly decoction, but there is a little bit of decoction because there's two cups of malt in there yeah. boiled with the corn. Yeah. So I use that, that infusion and boil it and add it to the, to the protein mash sure. that, I, that I had going for 15 minutes. And I always protein mash at that 132 degree temperature to get really good head retention. And I consistently uh, see that in all of my beers. I mean, sure. this is kind of not as carbonated as, as No, it but it be. certainly has that, that body to it. Yep. 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 So the interesting, one last part of the story is that um, I think they, they brewed this stuff and then when they were going to package it mm-hmm. and send it to the beer festival, I think they realized that they couldn't go through the label process. Oh, really? And then they were going to put it in cans. So I think they just said, well, what are we going to put it in? And they put it in a can that was labeled as Narragansett Porter. Okay. So that's how it was presented okay. at the Great American Beer Festival. I figured that, I think they figured, well, nobody out in Colorado knows what Narragansett Porter is because that's an East Coast beer, sure. a local, regional East Coast beer. Yeah. But it, it was just because I've had Narragansett Porter before yeah. in my travels, and it was, you know, what we had at the beer festival was Quite definitely different. not Narragansett right. Porter. Right. <laughs> so that's what it ended up being presented as. But wow. um, it was, you know, I was just thinking, you know, uh, it's a, you know, it was a, one of the big regional breweries i mean they produced millions of barrels of beer at the time mm-hmm. and these brew ma- these brewers that got together they must have had a home brewer on their staff or something yeah that said let's get creative because right. nobody else was doing that not even at the brew- big brewery level or at the craft and micro what year was le- this 1982 82 so this was around sort of the time you know sierra nevada was young at that point exactly yeah yeah the only three microbreweries at the that beer festival were River City with Jim Schluter from Sacramento, mm-hmm. uh, Ken Grossman, mm-hmm. and, and Boulder Beer. Yep. And of course, there was Anchor Steam there. But all the other breweries were regional brewers like Stevens Point, Olympia, yeah. um, uh, Matt Brewing, yep. uh, a lot of the different, Christian Moorline, Christian Schmidt from New Jersey. They made a n- nice beer called Double Prior. Okay. Brown, Double Prior, a brown lager. And, uh, that's what the beer festival was, and it was spectacularly uh, diverse for, for those days. Yeah, I believe yeah. it. Well, we'll circle back. I want to talk a little bit yeah. later about some of those maybe bygone brands and whatnot, but um, let's, let's talk a little bit about your early years in beer, um, just sort of how you found yourself more or less spearheading um, or helping to spearhead the American beer renaissance many years ago. Um, well, I got my start in at the University of Virginia as a college student, and we just were brewing dump and stir. Someone had introduced me and gave me a real simple recipe that was really made crap beer, basically. Sure. But we figured out, you know, there was such a thing as brewer's yeast rather than bread yeast, and that instead of cane sugar, we found a wine and beer making supply store and bought corn sugar, dextrose, and that seemed to make a big difference. It was a dump and stir recipe, mm-hmm. cans of hop-flavored malt extract. Never knew what hop looked like for three of my first three or four years of <laughs> brewing. Um, and uh, it was good enough that we, as 
college, my roommates and I had, we had pretty good reputation of yeah. making fun times and pretty good, decent beer. Yeah. Um, and when I moved to Boulder, people got wind of my knowledge of how to make beer, and uh, I was asked to teach a beer making class, which was then through the which was then called a community free school. Okay. Uh, one of the early, you know, there's a few of those kind of institutions in the United States, and we were lucky to have one here in Boulder, mm -hmm. uh, where you could teach what your passion was. Mm -hmm. And uh, and over ten years of time I there was a community of about a hundred homebrewing students that I cultivated and we kept in touch with each other and we shared recipes and that was in the early 70s and through about 1980 and it was in 1978 that I my one of my students and myself had the idea we drank too much of our own good beer and we had this idea of a, a newsletter Okay. And we uh, drank too much homebrew, and the newsletter became a magazine, and the magazine <coughs> became the American Home Brewers Association. And we, this idea kind of blossomed, and we Kept found snowballing. it. Yeah, we founded it in 1978. And we had to establish that community of, in Boulder, Denver area that was the core support for uh, the activities that we had, like the beer festival and some of our early conferences and get-togethers. They were small gatherings, but... There was a lot of enthusiasm, and sure. that, that kind of trickled through the community, whether it was, you know, the beer drinker themselves or the distributors of beer or the retailers of beer. They kind of knew that something was something was brewing in the area, and people were becoming aware and talking about beer in ways that they had never heard of before. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that was... So it sounds like a lot of the roots are, are more planted in, in the homebrewing side. When did that begin to transition to you know, things like uh, the Great American Beer Festival yeah, and having yeah. commercial breweries involved. And yeah, in 78, I founded the American Home Brewers Association. And at that time, uh, Boulder Beer and, and Sierra Nevada were open. And then there were uh, two or three other microbreweries in California and Michigan. There was one in Michigan called the Real Ale Company. They were the first. And we, as home brewers, we were really, we, we found out about them through the, through the grapevine through newsletters people had published and we'd get them. Um, we were really excited that, you know, these small breweries were, were popping up, a handful of them, and there was no organization out there that, would, that was there to help them, to figure sure. out what to do, how to do it, uh, make better beer, get equipment, get supplies. Um, in those days, it was hard enough to get home brewing supplies, let alone uh, malt and hops for a commercial brewery or even equipment. If you want to make it, start a brewery, you have to pretty much make your own equipment from dairy, from right. the dairy industry. I know reading Ken Grossman's book, it, there's yeah. a lot of that going on in the early years yeah, of Sierra Nevada. Yeah, absolutely. There wasn't, there wasn't any choice. And, you know, the, the companies that manufactured these things and, and the malt suppliers and the hop suppliers, they, you know, they were used to delivering train car loads of malt and you know, hundreds of bales of hops and you know these little guys that were wanted a much smaller supply right. i mean they didn't know how to deal with them because it didn't fit into their business model sure and uh, you know in boulder beer boulder beer was really fortunate to have coors because coors helped them uh get the supplies that they needed mm -hmm. and uh, i heard from bill newman in albany that you know anheuser bush helped him get kegs yeah. uh uh that were in short supply at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so 
everybody was scrambling around and figuring out how to make it work. There, sure. was, there was no blueprint. Um, manufacturers were, weren't ready to invest in developing small brewing, brewing size equipment for, the, for at least another 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a really do-it-yourself and very local yeah. business plan. And so you guys kind of felt like you were in the right place at the right time yeah. to maybe facilitate uh, building more of a community and a network around, yeah. around that. The board of directors that uh, we had at the time were local business people in the Boulder area that helped guide us through the formative years. And when it came to this idea of uh, helping the microbrewers, we, we coined that term at one point, um, it was obviously that it wasn't going to be a moneymaker with you know less than 10 microbrewers in the entire country and we were founding a trade association. Right. That was not, it's a good thing we didn't go to college and have business <laughs> degrees because we would have never done it. Sure. Um, but we did it and the American Home Brewers Association was doing an, well enough to provide some cash flow to kind of get into that. And, we, and it was in 1980, three when we officially started the what we call the institute for brewing studies which was the the professional arm the microbrewing arm of what the american home brewers association is doing and Mm -hmm. the the decision was made because there was more and more stories and how to stuff getting shoved into zymergy magazine which was our home brewing magazine for amateurs Mm -hmm. and it was just beginning to have this professional stuff in there which kind of Perk people up, but the home brewers didn't mind it, but we could see where it was going, and we didn't want to compromise the home brewing thing, so we started the New Brewer magazine. And, uh, you know, that was the stupidest thing we ever did, but it was the right <laughs> thing to do because it was only <laughs> like 15 right. microbrewers, and we started this magazine. And, but there were a lot of how we were getting calls in those days. Brewpubs were illegal across the country, and mm-hmm. people were calling us, and how do we change the laws in our state? And so we were kind of like a bank of information and a uh, community connector. We would connect people that had success doing some one thing, and then people were trying to do another place, and we'd connect these people, and they'd talk to each other sure. on the telephone or through the U.S. mail because there was no Internet in those days. Um, and that's how that was uh, initiated. And... Uh, People thought we were crazy and said, what a poor idea this was, but we loved what we were doing and we were really, people that we were doing it for were very, very appreciative. Yeah, so. I bet, I bet. And you were, you ended up being the president of the Brewer Association for 30 some years, is that right? Well, yeah, 40? Much, almost 40. Sure. Yeah, yeah I kind of let go of a lot of the responsibilities my last two or three years, um, uh, but I was still involved full time with other other aspects of the association, traveling a lot. Zach Talks Beer is supported by Cellar West Artisan Ales. Cellar West is an award-winning small brewery in Lafayette, Colorado, just outside of Boulder and a short drive to nearby Denver. Named one of Beer Advocate's best new breweries in 2018, Cellar West crafts a variety of small batch beers, ranging from barrel-aged farmhouse sales to rustic European lagers. Planning a trip to Colorado? Be sure to add Cellar West Artisan Ales to your list of brewery visits. And now, back to the show. (laughs) 
So kind of talking about some of those earlier breweries at, at Great American Beer Festival and some of the, you know, 10 to 15 that you were supporting early on. What what are some of the early beers and breweries that you gravitated towards? Um, you know, which ones are here still, which are which are not around anymore? Which ones do you miss? Are there certain beers in particular that you just every once in a while you man, you go, man, I remember that beer from 1985. I love that one. It's not around anymore. Oh, geez. Well, you know, there was always Boulder Beer in Sierra Nevada, and they'd say true to their their core sure. for many, several decades. I mean, Sierra Nevada is morphing into much more than just, you know, Porter Stout and Pale Ale, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was what they, were, what they were all about in those days. Um, oh, gosh. I think that I, I cherished and was encouraged. I wouldn't say they were my favorite beers, but I, they were often beers that I really respected when, when some of the larger regionals and the, the breweries that were m- making basically American lager and com- trying to compete with Budweiser mm-hmm. and, and Schlitz and Coors. And they would, they would branch out and make a pale ale or a porter or mm. a stout. And, you know, whether it was prior Double Dark at a Christian Schmitz or, uh, you know, Matt Brewing Company's Saranac. Sure. Pale Ale, which yeah. was a result of them winning a, they experimented and won a gold medal at the beer festival, and they said, let's take the plunge. And, you know, they said, you know, if it wasn't that, if they hadn't made the switch, they would have never survived. Because right. Because they were still trying to compete with cheap American light lager against, right. against the big guys. So, and then there was Rainier Ale, which was pretty unique and, and at the time. So, you know, if, if you traveled around the country, there was there really wasn't much of a microbrewer's choice. You'd, you'd have to kind of find the distinctive beers that were being made by the larger regionals. There was good Oktoberfest. Mm. Uber was yep. uh, Wisconsin Uber was Bach. making good, great Bach beer and yep. an Oktoberfest beer. That's one that I think, I mean, being from Wisconsin, one I think about quite a bit is Huber Bach back in the day. Um, you know, Lining Kugels would make a Bach beer here and there yeah, and they yeah. would play with some other stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, um, New Orleans, Minnesota, uh, August oh, Shell. Shell, August Shell. They made, they had, were making some interesting premium lagers that were distinct from their, you know, mainstream American yeah. light lagers. So I got to, you know, my hats off to them. I used to go to the, what the, was called the Brewers Association of America, um, conferences and every year there would be less and less brewers. That was the, the organization back during World War II was formed. Um, and but it was there was a lot of attrition and brewers were going out of business. But I would go there because that was my personal connection to these breweries to invite them to participate in the Great American Beer Festival. And yeah. I enjoyed going there. But I met all I met a lot of the the old timers there back in the eighties when I was every year I'd go there and meet them. And I saw this new generation of families, of these family run organizations that were coming up that were willing to rethink their uh their future you know yeah and, and, and you know so i give them a lot of respect and uh they said microbreweries you know there was there were a lot of early ones that every time they popped up you just had to love their beer because they were doing something new that no one else was doing in the city whether it was seattle or san francisco or new york city um boston i mean there was a time when there was only one or two breweries in each of those those areas right i mean having 
you mentioned Boulder Beer, having them in our locale. I think of them a lot uh, with that sort of first wave of American microbrewers. And um, they've sort of taken on, in the last couple of years, a, a different uh, shape, so to speak. The The physical location is, is no longer open. The brand still is alive. It's it's run by someone else now. I'm yeah, not entirely sure who's... Yeah, basically contracted out there yeah. licensed the... Yep. And I know, I mean, even even some of their beers that they've kept around, um, they've, they've reformatted those recipes to, yeah. to the point where I'm not, you know, they're fine beers, but they're not, they're sort of quite yeah. different than what they, they used to be. But they were certainly one locally that, um, for us in Colorado was sort of a shame for them to kind of, you know, go away in the, yeah. at least their physical space. Well, you know, I think it's admirable that they're trying to keep the brand alive and I'm sure the beer is a quality beer, but, but so much of what, craft brewers brewing and craft beer is about especially if you're successful is the people behind Mm -hmm. the beer are real and are passionate like yourself um and you're there whether it's a brewing paddle or managing a a larger aspect of the brewery you're i mean you're you're involved and when that comes through in the final product and the and the culture of the brewery then you know, you have all the elements of uh, success there. So, right. you know, if you just, if it's just a brand, mm-hmm. it doesn't work. You know, one of the greatest examples was Pete Pete's Wicked Ale. I don't yeah. know if you remember Pete. that. That was one. Of, that was number one, number two craft beer in the country. Mm. It was selling a load of beer, and it was a contract brewing company and they brewed at a, a few locations but they were on fire and Pete Slosberg was the the originator and he had such a personality and that was part of it and as yeah. soon as that was sold and it was just a a brand mm-hmm. it, you can go look at the history it just started going downhill because there was nobody no personality there was no culture behind the brand that was changing with the times anymore right i think i think oftentimes that gets overlooked and maybe underestimated how much that that truly does matter and and i think the vast majority of craft beer drinkers do care about having folks behind the beer and being able to sort of connect with those people you know through the beer and through the product and um, i do think it matters you know i oftentimes tell people they're like oh when do you think you'll ever get to a point where you're in an office all day doing something for the brewery and i just my response is generally I there's there's so little money to be made doing what we do mm-hmm. that if I don't have boots on and you know having to get home after a long day in the brew house and shower I you know I'd rather almost do something else because I just you know that's what I enjoy so much about this industry is being around people and our staff and our, our team and, and making a product and serving it to people who care about it and just seeing their smiles and seeing them yeah. enjoy it that's that's really what matters um all right, so that leads me to a question. Did you ever have intentions of starting your own brewery? Uh, or maybe you, you started one and I'm not aware <laughs> of it, but. Well, I get that. I, I have an answer for that question. Yeah, the, the answer is, yeah, I've, I've thought about that a lot. Mm-hmm. And because I thought about it and I was very observant, I decided not to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought about it a lot. But I know how hard you guys work. Um, I mean, I'm. I know what it's like to start a business because I started the Home Brewers Association in the first 10 years was touch and go sure. and it's struggling. And the next 10 years was like, okay, this might work. And after 20 years, like, hey, it's working. And, and, sure. and then it grows and you have employees that 
you know, you have one employee, then you have five employees, and you have 30 employees, and things change. Just mm-hmm. it's a, you, know, you try to adapt, and it's very rewarding. But do do I want to go through that again? Not really, but you know, if there was a right circumstance where I could brew what I wanted and I didn't have to worry about legislative matters and sure. distributors and a lot of employees and which is hard not to do yeah. um you know and government regulations and city ordinances and all that kind of covid i mean the whole point of the whole reason why i still homebrew is because i enjoy it sure i, mean, I brew 12 well 16 17 18 times a year mm-hmm. for myself and my friends and family and stuff and I love doing it. I love staying in touch with the soul of making beer, and sure. uh, so I can continue to relate to what you guys are always mm-hmm. all doing. And I can talk talk shop and visit breweries as much as I can. And I love. And even today, after forty years of doing this or more, I go into a place and I walk out a new place, and I walk out and I say, "Wow." never seen that before it was just yeah. different different tweaks to business models and creativity is just it it never it's never ending i mean when you look at the chats and the the uh, beer newsletters that are out there that mostly address the big picture mm-hmm. they don't really they only see the mega trends and they don't really realize what's or they don't write about acknowledge that there's something going on on a local level that is the core and the soul of the success for all craft beer yeah no i totally agree with that i think it's easy to get caught up in all the what people are being noisy about on social media and all the publications and stuff you know i often have we we brew a lot of sort of fringe styles at at my brewery at cellar west and you know we'll i'll brew a bach and i'll be talking to a brewer and they'll be like, oh, man, we've wanted to brew a Bach forever. I just, we just wouldn't be able to sell it. And I'm like, we sell our Bach flies. It's all local people who want a good amber lager, you know? Like, you might be surprised. Don't get caught up in thinking that just because style X, Y, and Z are so popular and you're seeing so many photos of them right now. Don't be afraid to do what you want to do. People will get behind it. Going back to what we talked about earlier, people want to connect with the folks behind their beer. And if you're excited about something, they're going to at least give it a try. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, the whole, there's whole, a lot of, I mean, there's a beer consumer and the brewery, but there's a lot of stuff in between. Even Certainly. The retailers and the distributors, and if you get big enough that you have to totally rely on them for everything, you are limited to what you mm-hmm. can, because people aren't going to buy into what your creativity. So, right. the, you know, having a tap room, being able to sell directly to the consumer allows the you as a brewer to hone your creative skills and continue to do that so right. that when the time's right you can ramp up or just continue to enjoy what you're doing at that level yeah so let's talk we you kind of alluded to it earlier but the smithsonian exhibit um let's talk a little bit about sort of your literary background the smithsonian exhibit how that kind of all came to be maybe about your your fateful spoon um <laughs> that they've got there uh exhibited let's let's talk a little bit about that so so books, how many books have you written at this point? Oh, I think about four, and there's a, two of them that have had two or two to four different editions to them. Okay. So over the years, I've been 
every once in a while I get busy for a whole year sure. doing doing that. So the complete joy of home brewing is the is the most popular one, and um, I like to think the home brewer's companion, which isn't as nearly as popular as the complete joy of home brewing, is uh, kind of the second volume to the complete joy. It's the mm-hmm. home brewer's companion, and it has a lot of the most more up to dated, updated, and more sophisticated all grain brewing insights and knowledge and my theories and thoughts about things uh whether it's hops or malt and yeah my approach and those and the microbrewed adventures uh is uh, my one probably one of my more enjoyable books to write because it's just stories of my travel sure. beer travels throughout the world so. yeah yeah, I remember when I first read that, I actually brought my copy in today for, for Charlie to sign for me. But I remember first reading that, man, it must have been 2008 or nine, um, being quite envious of your travels and being able to stop in all these breweries and meet all these folks. And um, it's a great book. If, if listeners haven't read uh, that book, it's it's a wonderful one. Are you working on anything right now, uh, book-wise? Or no, not, no, no not more anything. writing? Not, not, not for the time being, no. Sure. But still a lot a lot more energy left who knows yeah. what'll happen right and so the smithsonian exhibit is that still going on is that sort of a long-term exhibit or was yeah. that sort of okay it's so a it's, long ter- it's a per- part of the permanent exhibit right now of course sure. nothing's permanent but right. it's it's still there and they uh they plug it often and, and some of their newsletters and yeah because it's, it's popular and i brought it up earlier attraction. they've got your your home brewing spoon yeah. right your original my ho- original original wooden charismatic yeah. spoon yeah that was used by thousands of people in my kitchen to make beer back in the day when i was teaching homebrew classes mm-hmm. it had they have my uh copy of my original self-published joy of joy of brewing which was a 78 page self-published book that i predecessor to the big volume edition of the complete joy of home brewing yeah and it even has the trash can that i used to brew with and i i was amazed when when they asked me, you know, what do you have that we might use as an exhibit or, you know, or, or archive? And I, s- I gave them the wooden spoon and a few other things. And then a few months after I sent that in, I was in my garage and I was happened to glance and actually look at my trash pail that I have in my garage brewery, mm-hmm. uh, home brewery. And there it was, it was my original fermenter yeah and back in the days that i got at kmart back sure in when the, kmart in was the it 70s thing. yeah and uh it was lined with a plastic bag for trash and i said huh <laughs> uh, and i was joking around with with Teresa mccullough the the curator there and uh director of the craft brewing part of what smithsonian does and i said i was joking around i said you know i have a trash pail here if you want it I, my original fermenter and she was like oh <gasps> I could hear this gasp. Said, yes, we won it. And I said, yeah. "Are you kidding me?" And you know, so I sent them, <laughs> I sent them my tra- you know, 13, 14 gallon trash pail with that had my name on it and probably some measuring marks on it. It's in the, it's in the exhibit. Wow! Actually. How funny. It, it was. I mean, I got a kick out of that. Yeah. And they've got so they've got quite a bit. I, I haven't seen the exhibit, but I've I've seen photos of it and whatnot. And I think Sam Caligioni's got some stuff in it. Is that the yeah, same exhibit? Ken Grossman does. Ken Grossman's and, got stuff. Uh, Fritz Maytag, the Anchor Steam, he contributed some things. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's kind of it draw. It's an exhibit that draws you in to to make you curious and appreciate what the beginning was like and lead you on to thinking about other stuff. Sure. 
Sure. So as someone who has more or less lived their life alongside the growth of craft beer in America, um, is there anything you miss about the early years? Like perhaps an approach or an idea or sentiment that you hope, you know, modern brewers are keeping alive and paying attention to? Hmm. The spirit of innovation, creativity, and figuring out how to get through challenges has always been there and still is, which is a really good thing. I think, you know, talking about the beer, I kind of miss sometime, not a lot, but too frequently I'll go into a, a tap room, whether it's a retail bar or a brewery, and the choice and diversity of styles mm. is limited because a lot of the tap handles get taken up by six or seven varieties of IPAs and mm -hmm. a few seltzers and some strong super dupers aged beers. Sure. And I missed the diversity we had, let's say 20 years ago when you could get various types of ale. Right. Uh, really different and various types of lager. Um, and now you can find them, but you have to look. You don't have to know where to look. I mean, I come to Cellar West because you guys are unique sure. and your beers are balanced and they're not, you know, you don't have to have the only choices of strong beers. I don't think many of your beers, if any, are super No, strong. I mean, this time of the year, we'll, we'll have one or two on yeah. at a and time. And there's some, you know, and there's in the county that, you know, if I want lagers, there's some really good lager, right. small scale lager breweries that are making beer is good or better than the Germans, mm -hmm. <laughs> in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And there are some good ale breweries too. And so, but it used to be, you know, you get 12 tap handles and you, you'd have a real variety of stuff right. that was there that yeah, that, I kind of miss. That seems to be a, a little bit of a, uh, as we have the ambulance flying by, um, that seems to be, a, when I talk to brewers who have sort of been in the mix for 10, 15, 20 plus years, and ask them, you know, what's something that, um, you know, they wish for the industry, so to speak. That seems to be an overarching thing right now is a little bit of um, homogeneity going on and, and everything's just kind of blending into sort of the same handful of styles. And there's a little less of that desire to find the white space these days, it seems like. So, um, you know, if there's brewers listening, take it on yourselves to, to kind of keep championing, uh, being creative and pushing boundaries and doing things that you don't see everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So piggybacking off that, what excites you about the current state of craft beer now versus 30 years ago? And, you know, where do you think we're headed in the next five plus years? What 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 are you excited about when you think of, you know, now we have how many thousands of breweries in yeah, the U.S.? I mean, it's 9,000 and it's, it's still crazy. growing. I mean, people people say, oh, it's getting saturated. But I've heard that since 1985. Mm -hmm. You know, there's too many, too many, you know, there's 50 breweries in the United States. That's enough. You can't get more than that. There's not a market for it. Right. But things, uh, I'm excited that there are still many, many hundreds of breweries that are opening up every year. Sure. Because that infuses new energy, new ideas, and, and people, a lot of them are starting on a very small scale. So they're still brewing, bringing in that that home brewing influence, because mm -hmm. I think that's at the core of the success of craft beer is the necessary infusion of new ideas and creativity that most professional brewers usually need to focus on 
their business and they don't have the bandwidth to be as creative as they were when they first started out. Right. I mean, some people, some brewers have been successful in maintaining that, and that's a, that's a really cool skill to have. But ha having that that homebrew creativity, because as home brewers, you know, we're still doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and there's still more not only crazy but really delicious stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm I myself am have experimenting with 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 types of beer that are not stylistically don't fit anywhere because yeah. I'm, I'm I'm just hybridizing the the information I know and just making things that I think will taste good because of the hops I'm using or the malts I'm using and the process in which I I, uh, I ferment um, there's still a lot of creativity that that can be doing I mean this a simple one is what people call Italian Pilsner mm -hmm. and it means different things to different people but dry hopping Pilsner in a way that's not IPA ish right but something else that couldn't have been could have easily been evolved began this evolution 10 20 years ago there's nothing stopping anybody from doing it right but you get still too focused on what you're doing and what the market's doing it's like it's home brewers just kind of experimenting i mean i dry hop with a lot of different hops that are generally used for lagers mm -hmm. and some work and some don't and when they work they're it's just like i can't get that beer anywhere else i can't yeah. go to a, a local brewery or a brew pub and get that kind of beer and that's one of the reasons i continue to brew beers because I make beers that I like and I can't get anywhere else. <laughs> yep. The Smithsonian Porter or Schwartz beer Wonderful is like beer. dry hop cascade with 10% corn to make it a little bit of light body and mm -hmm. drinkable. Just enough roast. I, I'm, I'm not going to find that anywhere. Yeah. And I, I'm sure this won't surprise you, but that is that is of commercial quality homebrew right there. That is a, <laughs> that's a wonderful beer. I appreciate you bringing it in. So, Charlie, we can wrap things up here. Where do people keep up to, to date on what you are, are doing these days? Well, it's one of the projects I have is eventually to get a web page. Sure. But I've been pretty busy doing other things. I guess uh, I tweet every day some kind of interesting bit of beer information that's culturally relevant, whether it's international or national or quirky. Yeah. So follow me on Twitter. Um, I got a Facebook fan page and, uh, and an Insta Instagram Okay, great. Uh, that That's I contribute particularly when I'm traveling. Sure. And uh, we kind of touched on this before we got on the mics here, but travel plans, is there anywhere, you know, once the world gets, quote unquote, back to normal, normal where are you looking to go and, uh, you know, get back into the swing of things of traveling, enjoy some good beer? Is there a certain yeah. spot that is on the top of your mind well, right now? I was able to get away last summer and I'm looking forward to getting away this coming summer to Maine where I do a beer program for a week mm. on an island off the coast and 12 people and myself we taste 70 beers in about four days from all over the country and talk stories Wow! Um, and share that information you know beer enthusiasts and not necessarily brewers but sometimes brewers but otherwise other than that I'm looking to continue to tour around the Boulder Denver air front range area and pop into breweries that I've never been to I'm really looking forward to getting outside the country yeah uh, that'll you know love going to Europe love going to Asia uh, 
well, hopefully South and Central America. There's a lot of stuff going on despite right. COVID. Right. There's a lot of stuff going on that I'm, I keep in touch with, and I've had some Zoom meetings and po- and presentations. I don't do too many Zoom. I'm not into Zoom too much. Yeah. After I've done it. I don't get as much as inspired as doing things in person, but uh, looking forward to getting out there again. Yeah, I think we all are. Well, Charlie, thank you so much. Appreciate your time and uh, wish you all the best as we get through the winter here and hopefully uh, move our way into spring sooner rather than later. But uh, yeah, thank you for listening to Zach Talks Beer. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's kind of how we keep things rolling along over here. I don't necessarily have a social media presence for the show, but you can visit ZachTalksBeer.com to contact me and to check out all the new episodes. Try to get one out every couple weeks um, or as much as my life at my brewery allows for. Uh, And on that note, feel free to visit CellarWest.com or Cellar West Artisan Ales on Instagram or Facebook to learn a little more about my small brewery in Colorado. I hope everyone has a great next few days and we will circle back soon enough. Cheers. Cheers.